You're listening to audio provided by Valleydale Church. To find more resources or to donate to this ministry, please check out valleydale.org. You know, I am, uh, I'm excited and I'm, a lot of things, but I'm especially grateful that our good friend June Hunt is here. June has, is a counselor who has, listen, has trained counselors and has counseled all around the world, um, has this unique program called Hope in the Night. She's on radio stations all across the country, other places as well, and um, she gets on there about 11 o'clock at night. I don't know how she stays up that late. I'm in bed by 9.30. But uh, she's up at 11 o'clock at night. Now listen, this isn't a Dr. Field program where they have already gone through the stuff with the This is just raw calls from people in desperate situations. And she gives them hope in the night. Hope in Jesus Christ. She's here today. And uh, she's going to be sharing just after this. Those of you who filled out... Um, uh, who signed up. You've got your lunches there. Those of you who did not, uh, you're welcome to come. We don't have lunch for you, but you're welcome to come. It's called Bonding with Your Teen Through Boundaries. As soon as that came out, the, um, the uh, press came back to her and said, or editors came back and said, you've got to do one with children, bonding with your children with uh, boundaries. I've shared with her bonding with your wife through boundaries on shoe buying. I'm waiting for that book to come out. Uh, I'll have her back just for a solo session at that time. Um, and then she has uh, How to Forgive When You Don't Feel Like It, which every preacher in the SBC probably needs that. And then the answer to anger. Uh, she sold out of the um, anxiety. I was talking about her book on anxiety. And then she has a book on depression. She's going to be talking about that in the second part of this afternoon. So I'm excited that she's here because... We try to do some things through the course of a year that we feel like will really help people, families, uh, marriages, children, teenagers, and this happens to be one of those things here at the end of the year we feel like is really a great treat and a great help for you. So with that uh, said, take your copy of God's Word, go to Romans chapter 13, um, Peter uh, Ames Carlton wrote probably the definitive work on the life of Paul McCartney. Paul McCartney, a life. And in it, he tells about uh, the time when the Beatles broke up. They finally broke up. You know, they kept breaking up, breaking up, breaking up. It's kind of like a going out of business sale. Um, they were breaking up. When they eventually broke up, McCartney was just at the end of, he felt like he was at the end of his life. He said, where do you go from here? Uh, now, one of the, obviously, one of the greatest musicians of all time, uh, won more awards than any mansion could ever house or hold, and yet he went into a dark depression, went up to his home in Scotland, and there he either was either getting drunk or doing drugs, doing drugs or getting drunk. Uh, he was spiraling literally out of control, uh, felt no hope, felt that life was over, there was nothing else he could do. And then a little tune 
hit the back of his head. It, it kept stirring back there, and he remembered it, and he began to hum it, and then he began to play it. And uh, he recalled the song was a little song that he and Linda used to sing to their kids when they would get up in the mornings. Now, our own Paul McCartney is going to sing it. You most likely uh, have never heard this uh, song. He recorded it years later. I think it was on Flaming Pie, on the album Flaming Pie. And uh, it's a real unusual, very unheard of song by Paul McCartney. And I want you to listen carefully to the words. When you're wide awake, say it for goodness sake, it's gonna be a great day. While you're standing there, get up and grab a chair, it's gonna be a great day. And it won't be long, oh no, it won't be long, no, it won't be long, no, oh, no, it won't be long, no, it won't be long, no, oh, no, it won't be long, no, it won't be long, no, oh, no, it won't be long. There you go. It's going to be a great day. Did you remember what, what the words were? When you are finally awake, wide awake. when you're wide awake, uh, get up for goodness sake, it's going to be a great day. Words of Paul McCartney. Now, I want you to listen to what uh, Carlton said about that, that uh, McCartney. He, he quotes McCartney on this, and he said, I like the idea of a song saying that help is coming and that there's a bright light on the horizon. I've got absolutely no evidence for this. Now, that's just the saddest statement in the world. I like the idea of a song saying that help is coming, that there's a bright light on the horizon. I've absolutely no evidence for this, but I like to believe it. It helps lift my spirits. Well, there's another Paul in another day who talks about that same great day. His name was Paul, formerly Saul of Tarsus, and in Romans chapter 13, he's going to talk about a great day, and he's going to tell you that the light on that great day is none less than Jesus Christ. So if you've got your Bibles, I want you to look there, that famous passage with me we've been looking at now for a good little while, Romans chapter 12, uh, 13, I'm sorry, Everything in 13 goes back to chapter 12. Uh, I'm generally sharing this with you that everything that uh, Paul is going to say in the rest of Romans goes back to one verb. It, now, this is, this is me. This is what I think. It goes back. You can believe something else and be wrong if you want to, but I think it goes back to one verb, and it's the verb transformed. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We are a transformed people by the grace of God. Something has happened inside of us that now has changed not just the inside, but it works its way out and changes us on the outside to where we are living more every day that transformed life. 
And so he begins with that. If you remember, I've gone through this because some of you are new, some of you missed a Sunday or two. He's talked about our, our, what's been transformed is my relationship with God. Also transformed is my relationship with myself. I see myself in a different light. I see myself in the way um, um, as I stand before the law, that I've broken the law, and yet I see myself in Jesus Christ that he paid the penalty for my sin. So I see myself in somewhat of a different light. I see myself, it's been transformed the way I relate to you. All of God's people in the family of God, here in the church of God, how we deal with one another, that's been transformed. Um, how we deal with mean people should be transformed. A couple of weeks ago, I preached, how do you handle mean people? Well, the way we handle mean people should have been transformed by the grace of God in us. And then I skipped the part on the government, and I came down to this part on the neighbors. How do I treat my neighbors that I don't really know? And the Word of God tells me I love them uh, to the point to where I do for them what Christ has done for me. Now, here's the whole issue in all of this. You're reading this, and you begin to think, at night I can't do this. Uh, this is a struggle. This is difficult. This is hard. You know, it's one thing to work on my relationship with God, my relationship with myself, because this is the biggest problem in Mac Brunson's life right here, is me. And then I have to turn around. Well, how do I relate to all of my brothers? You know, you just wear yourself out. How do I do that? How do I stay up for all of that? How do I stay motivated to help people that are mean to me? And then how to treat people that are my neighbors that is, people I really don't even know, but the Word of God tells me that they're my neighbors, and I'm to love them. Well, Paul comes in this section now, beginning in verse 11, and he says that the hope in the coming of Jesus Christ, you get that? The hope of the coming of Jesus Christ becomes the motivation to live out the transformation that God has made in my life. My motivation is this. Jesus Christ is coming again. Now, I don't know the day and the hour. I don't have that down, but I want to tell you something. Every single one of us as believers, those of us who have been changed by the grace of Jesus Christ, are told repeatedly, repeatedly, that we should live in an expectation of the coming of Jesus Christ. The way the Old Testament believers lived, waiting for the Messiah to come the first time, we should be living really with even a greater anticipation for the second coming of Jesus Christ. That's what he goes off into beginning in verse 11. And I've got two things that I want to show you here. How do we do that? You say, now how are we supposed to live in this anticipation? Well, there are two things. Number one, first of all, understand the times. That's the first thing that he's going to say in verse 11. Are you there with me? Do this. That's an imperative. It's a command. He uh, comes and he says, here is the command to you. Do this. Well, what am I supposed to do? I'm supposed to know the time. Knowing the time that it is already the hour for you to awaken from this sleep. Now, let me just stop right there and tell you, Paul is often reaching back into his world pulling metaphors or illustrations out of the world that he lived in. He'd do that with athletic um, uh, competition. He'd reach back and he'll draw on an athletic um, 
uh, metaphor, athletic illustration. He'll reach back and he'll draw out a metaphor from uh, seas, uh, from ships that are out at sea, or he'll reach into the military world. Now he's writing from Rome. Oh, he's writing to Rome, and he's writing these Roman churches that are scattered across the imperial city of Rome, and they're used to watching legions move up to the gates of Rome, legions that would move through the city of Rome, uh, legions that were moving out of the city of Rome. There's this constant movement of these legions coming in and out of Rome, going to various parts of the empire. And so he reaches into that and he grabs a hold of it. And what he does is this, he says, I want you to think about this, this legionnaire. Now a man would sign up for the Roman legion uh, for 20 years. That was the first stint. It was none of this two-year period and then you're out. It was a 20-year stint. He would sign up to be a Roman soldier for 20 years. They were in either battle or training the entire 20 years. Uh, that's what they were doing. If they were not in battle, they were training for battle. The Roman soldier of the first Christian century was the best disciplined, uh, best trained, best fitted um, man in the entire world at that day. They were constantly training to go to battle. And if they were not training for it, then they were actually in battle or moving to battle. And so Paul reaches into that world, pulls up this thing, and he says, here you are, you're a soldier now, and in the night comes this trumpet blast that is uh, not reveille, but it is a call to battle. You hear it, and you get up, and you just move. Now, Roman soldiers were trained that way. Uh, they were trained uh, uh, as a unit, which is why they were able to take over the entire then known world. They were trained that when a centurion hollered to or called out to his unit of 100 soldiers, when he would call out um, an order, maybe it was to move to the right, to flank to the right. Uh, they did it without thinking. They wouldn't think. They wouldn't stop and say, well, is this a good move? They wouldn't question him. Uh, they wouldn't go through all of that. They just were to move as soon as they were told to do it, uh, knowing that their leader was the one who knew what was best for them to do. So there you've got these Romans who uh, would get up in the middle of the night, you know, and uh, getting up in the middle of the night, dressing in their armor, going out immediately in the battle, following the direction of, uh, of their centurion, of where to go, which way to move. So Paul comes and he uses that. He's drawing on this picture here. And he says, you should know the time. Uh, just as a soldier who knows when they go into battle that it's time to do battle, you are to know, oida is the word, and I won't get off into that, but it means to know it because you've experienced it. Just as Rome would get this, this letter from Paul and these Romans would know immediately what he was referring to in this statement, that this was a reference to how the Roman army moved. He says, you should know the time, just as a Roman soldier does, knowing the time. The kainos, not the chronos, not the chronological time. You should know the time that you are living in. You are living in a specific time period, and you should know it. You should be aware of it. Now, all through the Word of God, we get things like, well, it was the time of law. It's the time of grace. It's the time of the Jew. It's the time of the Gentile. It's the time of the church. It's the time of tribulation. All of these are there. It's the time of decision. 
And so all of these are scattered through the word of God. Paul comes and he says, you should know the time that you're in. You should understand that you're living in a period of time uh, where the coming of Christ is near. Now, there were those in Jesus' day who should have known the same thing about his first coming. In fact, back in Matthew chapter 16, you can look there if you want to, but in Matthew chapter 16, you've got the Pharisees and the Sadducees that uh, come to Jesus. Now, to see these two groups together would be like, I don't know, I don't, I don't have an illustration. You would never see them together, but here they are the, together. The Pharisees, do you remember what I told you last week? All right, get out a pen and paste, paste, piece of paper. We're going to take a test. The Pharisees were what? They were all far right as far right as you could get, fundamental law, the 613 subdivisions of the written law, uh, of the oral law that grew up around the written law, they observed, they knew them, they could just list them off, all 613 of them. On the other end, you had the Sadducees who were as liberal. They were the college professors from Harvard. They were as liberal as you could get. You didn't want to believe in the resurrection of the dead. You don't have to believe it. You don't have, if you don't want to believe in life after death, you don't have to believe it. If you want to believe that this life is over, when you're not, you, that's fine. You can believe that. If you don't want to believe in angels and spirits, you don't have to, any, anything you don't want to believe in, it, it's as liberal as it can get. You don't have to believe in it. The two of them come together. These two groups come together, which would cause you to just stand up and stare. Uh, and just think, this can, what, is, what is this that's brought this about? Well, what brought it about was an opposition, a bitter opposition to Jesus. So they come in an attempt to try to trick Jesus, and they say, give us a sign that you're the Messiah. That's, that's what they're asking. They're saying, give us a sign to show us, to prove to us that you are the long-expected Messiah. And Jesus turns around and looks at him, and he says, guys, 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 man, you know, who you all are, and you come asking for a sign. When you can discern the sign of the times. I, I told the earlier service, they'd gone to the Jason Simpson School of Meteorology, and uh, they knew the signs of the sky. You know, my granddad, who was in the Navy in World War I, um, he, he, used to, he used to say that, I, I can hear him saying it, uh, red at night, sailor's delight, red in the morning, sailor take warning. And that's exactly what, that's what Jesus said. I guess he got it from Jesus. Um, you know, you, you can look at the sky and at night when there's red there, uh, you, well, seas are going to be calm, no storms coming, red in the morning, there's going to be storms on the way, so it's going to get rough. Jesus said, you can do that. You can discern that, but you cannot discern the sign of the time. In other words, when the Messiah is standing right in front of you, you can't discern that. You don't know it. And so they could not discern the sign of the times, and that's what Paul is saying now to the church in Rome, surely, surely you know the times that you're living in. And then he's going to come, and he's going to say this. He's going to, he's going to make it even with a greater sense of urgency here. Listen to what he says. It's already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. And he says you should know three things. Salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. That is the ultimate salvation, going to be with Christ. 
the coming of Christ. It's nearer to us than we believe. And you say, but preacher, they've been saying that for 2,000 years. But yes, let me tell you, you're closer to it now than Paul was. You're closer to it today than you were this time yesterday. He says, salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. Number two, the night is almost gone. That is, the darkness is just about gone. And number three, the day is near. Dawn is about to dawn. The morning sun is about to come up. And so in that, he says, you have got to be awake. We're going to go to Ephesians um, in this new year. Let me, let me just take you over there and show you this in Ephesians chapter 5. Listen to what Paul says there. For this reason, it says, awake sleeper, arise from the dead. Christ will shine on you. Sleep from time to time is seen as spiritual apathy. It's seen as spiritual being spiritually comatose, being spiritually out of it, being spiritually unengaged. He says here, awake sleeper, arise from the dead. Christ will shine on you. Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. Paul comes and he says, do this, knowing the time. It's already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now salvation is nearer to us than we believed. The night is almost gone and the day is near. Now you stop, just stop right there. In studying this, I thought this week, how many people slept through incredibly important moments in Scripture because they're there? And my mind first went to Sisera in the book of Judges because Sisera, who led the Canaanites against Israel and was defeated, God delivered Israel from the Canaanites, and as he did, Sisera went into the tent of Jael, a woman who was at home by herself, and he goes into the tent. Instead of going back and rounding up the rest of his army that had been defeated, he goes into the tent of this woman, Jael, and uh, all he's interested in is, is some refreshment. He asks her for water, and instead of giving him water, she gives him milk. Now, milk, they say, has a little bit of something that kind of makes you a little sleepy. That's why you drink warm milk at night, I guess. And, uh, you know, it kind of aids sleep. Well, uh, Sisera drank that milk, uh, laid down in the tent, went to sleep, and Jael went over and got a tent peg and just pounded it right through his temple. Welcome to Valleydale. <laughs> That's a great thing to think about, right? I would say he went to sleep at the wrong time. I think that was pretty obvious. He went to sleep at the wrong time. Then you come to Jonah. There's Jonah who's running away from God. He gets on a ship that is headed to Tarshish. We have no clue as to where Tarshish is. Uh, most people believe that it was somewhere on the coast, on the far coast of Spain. We really don't know. Uh, it was the furthest point. It was like our saying, I'm leaving out of here and I'm going to Timbuktu. We don't know where that is. It's just as far away as we can go. And so that's what he, that's what he was saying. So he not only was going to go as far away from God as he thought he could get, he gets on that boat and he goes far down in that boat as he can possibly get. He goes down to the hole. That's where all of the timbers tie into the keel of the boat. Down in the very bottom, below the waterline, he goes in, gets down there in the very bottom of that boat, and he goes to sleep. 
and he sleeps through all the terror that's going on up on the deck. And when they finally wake him up, bring him up there, he says, yep, I'm the problem here. You got to do something with me. And so he sleeps through all of that, letting all of these folks be terrorized, thinking that down there in sleep, I can escape all of the thoughts, all of the problems. You know, I'm just unconscious and I don't know anything. Then you come to the disciples. Judas is gone. He's leading those troops now that will come and get Jesus. He's off betraying Christ. Jesus comes into the garden of Gethsemane. He leaves eight disciples here to pray. He takes the other three, Peter, James, and John, and he tells them, listen, sit. And he gives them a a heart plea. Stay here. Stay awake. Pray. This is a difficult hour. Stay awake and pray. Jesus goes off by himself to pray. He comes back and they're asleep. He wakes them up. Uh, And he tells them again, stay awake and pray. He goes off. He comes back again the second time. They're asleep. He wakes them up. He goes off the third time and prays. And he comes back and the third time they're asleep. And he says, just sleep on the hours at hand. It's just too late at this point uh, for you. You're, You're not awake. You're asleep. You don't know what this hour is. Now, here's the concern that I have is I'm fearful that most of the people in the churches today are spiritually asleep when it comes to the times that we're living in. These are dark times, folks. These are times that should concern us. Instead of our running out and embracing everything that the culture is getting itself into, we should be awake realizing that these times are very dark times and that time is short for us to do what God has called us to do. We're just many of us spiritually asleep. You know, through the years, I have prayed God send revival. I've prayed it for this church. I prayed it for the church I was in before this and the church before that, all the way back to my first church that I pastored before I went to Southwestern. And uh, the first Sunday I had 12 people there. I started praying, God, bring us a revival. Uh, Through those 16 months that I stayed there and pastored, I prayed for God to send us. Every church I've been in, I may not have prayed it every day, but I pray it consistently time and time again. God, bring us revival. We've seen the movement of God in this church. Now, I'm just telling you that because some of us are too asleep to realize what God has been doing in the life of this church. I've seen God move in this church, but we've not had revival yet. And I long for it, and I want it. And I've looked at events that I thought, well, this will bring revival. This will precipitate the revival that is going to come to the church. I was in Dallas in 2001 at 9-11, and I just knew that day, all day long, I just knew God is going to use this, and revival is going to hit this Sunday morning. It did not. It did not. There was a little bump in the crowd. But let me tell you something. A crowd doesn't bring revival. I've thought of it through events all through the rest of these last 20 some odd years. I thought COVID would do it. I thought the whole world is shut down. All of us are locked down. We're inside. I'd never seen anything like that before. I think the last time something like that happened was around 1918. And um, 
You know, my great-grandparents died in it. I know that from my uh, grandfather. Uh, they died in that uh, breakout of influenza, but I'd never seen anything like that. I'd never seen the world shut down. I thought to myself, surely to goodness, nobody can do anything. We don't know what's going to happen next. We were terrified of a microscopic uh, virus that uh, was killing millions of people, we were told, all over the world. And I thought to myself, surely this is going to bring people to Christ. And I was amazed at the people. who We had hundreds of thousands of people watching us online. We had more money coming into the church. I thought, we're not meeting for church. Nobody's going to give a dime. And money poured into this place. God blessed and through you and people gave and people were faithful and we got online and people were tuning in and then we started back up church and I started seeing people come to this place, uh, coming to Christ. Do you know this year we've had over 200 who've, come, who've joined this church and almost 100 of those have been by profession of faith? I'm going to tell you, that's an amazing thing to happen this day and time. I, I see that. Listen, I, I see all of that happen, and then I ask the question, all of these people who used to be here, who used to be in church, who used to come, where are they now? In a split second, God can shut everything in this world down due to a microscopic virus you can't possibly see and nobody knows how to treat and what do we do? Those who have claimed to be believers through the years suddenly decide, I really don't need to go to church. Jesus says, know the times that you're in. Paul says, know the times that you're in. Peter says it as well. Know the time. John says it as well. Know the times that you're in. It's time to wake up. It's time to realize this is going to be, listen, not to be fearful, there's a great day coming. There's a light on the horizon, and the light on the horizon is Jesus Christ. In my heart of hearts, I honestly feel like this is a great falling away right now. I go back to Matthew chapter 24 Matthew chapter 24, I read these words, and he's talking to those that believe. At that time, many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will rise and will mislead many because lawlessness is increased. Most people's love will grow cold. Uh, but the one who endures to the end, he'll be saved. Listen, it's the same thing that Paul is talking about over here in, Rome, in uh, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 3. When he says this, realize that uh, in the last days, you see the word difficult? The word literally is kalapos in the Greek. It means demoniacal times will come. For men will be lovers of self. There's America right there. There's our culture right there. Men are lovers of self. Lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable. You, you listen, I, I try to get Christians to come back together and reconcile, and it's the hardest thing in the world to try to do. You can't get people who claim I've been reconciled to God through Jesus Christ to get reconciled to his brother. Don't make me holler at y'all. Irreconciled, malicious gossips without self-control, brutal haters of God, treacherous, reckless, conceited lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness. They're walking around like this saying, oh, but I'm the godly one. Jiminy Cricket. <laughs> but get off of that before I just get my blood pressure too gone here. 
What were we doing? Back to chapter 13. That's what he's talking about there. Know the times. There is a great day coming. And that light is Jesus Christ. Now there's, there's the first thing that he says to know the times. Know the times that you live in. The second thing that he comes to say is this. Know your attire. Understand what you are to wear. Understand your identity. And he's going to come very simply. Sometimes uh, there are those that divide this into three parts. I'm just going to divide it into two. So look at this. I'm in the middle of verse 12 because he starts there with a new section, therefore. Do you see that? Therefore. What's the therefore? Therefore. It's because of everything that he's just said, knowing the time. It's already the hour for you to be awake. Wake up. Salvation is nearer to us than we believe. The night is almost gone. The day is near. Therefore, you've got two things to do. Number one is to lay aside. Do you see that? It's right there in the text. Let us lay aside the deeds of darkness. Now, just stop with that right there. He says, this is what you do. First of all, you got to strip this stuff off. Now, that's the word, literally, in the Greek. Strip it off. I grew up in the South with a very Southern mother who every day met you at the, at the screen door. It, you, on the porch, you got met at the screen door with the broom, and she had one thing to say to you, strip it. And you had to get down to your BVDs. Uh, you had to get down, and then she followed you into the house with the broom saying, straight to the tub, straight to the shower. Get, you know, get, get in there and get washed up. Well, that's what Paul's doing here. Paul's standing here, and he's just saying, like, Mama, strip it. Get this stuff off of you. This is what's come off of you because of Jesus Christ, because you've been transformed. Verse 11, let us behave properly as in the day, expecting that Jesus is coming. We have stripped this stuff off. Now, there's six things here, and they divide up into three pairs of two. Look at what he talks about. One that's very public, carousing and drunkenness. Now, I don't know what to do with that other than to tell you that is simply a partying spirit where you just carouse and you get drunk. Uh, those two things don't belong in the believer's life. And you say, when I disagree with you, well, hang, you can be wrong all you want to be. I, I'm just telling you what the Word says. He says you should strip off of you anything of carousing and drunkenness. You get it off. That's public. People see you doing this. What kind of a testimony is it for a Christian to live that way? S secondly, he comes to this thing of impurity sexual promiscuity, and sensuality. Now, that used to be done in the darkness uh, at night in a room between two people or so, and yet today the door is flung open, and instead of doing it in the room in the dark, they do it down Main Street in a parade. As if to say, we are proud of how perverted we are. Amen. Yeah, get on TikTok, YouTube, television, go to the movies, open up a magazine. It's everywhere. It's an accepted lifestyle. What God has said we're not to do. He said, you strip it off. That may have been you. That's not you now. You have been transformed. Something has changed in you. 
And by the way, let me tell you something, folks, because cowboys don't come on until later today, do they? Anyway, listen, listen to me on this. Let, 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 let me just explain to you the, the difference between the magisterial reformers and those radical reformers was that the magisterial reformers would say, yes, we're justified by faith. That's all you need to know. Just know the doctrine. And those radical reformers would come and say, it is important to know the word of God, but it is just as important that you live it out. And they paid with their life for that. They paid with their lives for telling all those other Presbyterians who killed the Baptists, I don't know what to say other than if I show up missing, y'all, y'all please. You know, they, they paid with their lives. They gave their lives. They said, we so believe that we're to live this way that if you want to kill us, you'll just have to kill us, but we're going to live this way. That's exactly what the word of God calls us to. We're to lay this stuff aside. All of this, lay it aside, the deeds of darkness and he comes with those last two that could be private, but often become very public, strife and jealousy. Right there, listen, let me tell you something. If there's strife between, between two Christians out here in the parking lot, and it's only between those two Christians, it, it won't be the next Sunday before it's all over the place. It'll become very public. Strife between believers, jealousy between believers. He says, all of that we have stripped off. Now watch this. Here's the second thing that he comes. He says, well, what are we to do? We're to put something on. If I strip off, I've got to put something on. Look at what he says in the middle uh, or at the end of verse 12. Put on the armor of light. Put on the armor of light. Now let me just, let me just stop with the put on because all through the New Testament, we're constantly told to put this on, put that on, put the other on. Ephesians chapter 4, 24, Paul says we're to put on the new self. I'm a new creature in Jesus Christ. Put on the new self. Colossians 3.12, Paul says we are to put on, listen to this, a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. He says that's what you put on. Luke chapter 24, verse 49, Jesus is telling us to put on the Holy Spirit. You are clothed with power from on high. Put on the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 6, 11 through 14, 1 Thessalonians 5 through 8, we're to put on the armor of God. He tells us here we're to put on the armor of light. There are three places we're told to put on armor. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 7, we're to put on the weapon. The word there is weapon, or we could say armor of righteousness. Now, what does the armor of righteousness, what does the weapon of righteousness protect us from? This world. In the context there, this world. The things of this world, I've got to be guarded again. I've got to wake up, understand the times, put on the armor of righteousness to keep the things of this world from infecting me or affecting me or affecting me. It does all of it, by the way. So there's the first. The second is this. He tells us to put on the, uh, the armor of God in Ephesians 6, 11. He says, put on the full armor of God so that you may uh, stand against the attacks of Satan, the schemes of Satan. How do I fight what Satan has schemed against me, planned and plotted against me? I put on the full armor of God. We'll look at that in this coming year. That's how I withstand the fiery darts of the evil one. 
But then he comes here and he tells us, put on the armor of light. What is the armor of light? Look down in verse 14. He explains it to you. Put on Jesus Christ. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the armor of light. He is the light of the world. And in doing that, what does it protect me from? It protects me from making provisions for the flesh in regard to its lust. In other words, when I put on the armor of light, it protects me from the deeds of darkness. The light of Jesus Christ keeps me from falling to the kingdom of darkness, which I was delivered out of, right? Isn't that what the New Testament? We have been delivered out of the kingdom of darkness, and we've been brought into the kingdom of light. Now, the good thing of the gospel is this, is that all the way through the Word of God, we keep getting these little snippets right here. You can go to John chapter 14. You can go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. You can go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. There are various places. You can go to 1 Peter, 2 Peter. You can go to the book of Revelation. You can go to Jude. You've got all of these places in Scripture where Jesus, Peter, Paul, John, Jude, all of these guys give us this word about the second coming of Christ. I really wish I had 30 extra minutes where I could just begin to walk you through the New Testament, just show you it's right here, it's right here, it's right here. He says it here, he says it here. Why does he do that? Now, there are two reasons why we are giving these little snippets, like he's talking here about the rapture of the church, the coming of Christ to take away his bride. Why does, why does he keep giving us little snippets of that? Why does he always turn to that? Because in that, there is a warning and there is a promise. The warning comes to the believer that we'd better wake up and realize the time that we're living in. We cannot be asleep. You remember a number of weeks ago, Barry preached on uh, the five wise virgin, virgins and the five foolish virgins and he talked about that. Jesus gives us that whole, that whole chapter, chapter 25, I believe, in Matthew, where he talks about this. You better be ready. You better be ready. You better be ready. So he's warning not just lost people. He's warning believers. You need to be ready for this. The second thing is the promise. And the promise is what's so good. Is that I've got a Savior who's coming for me. I've got a Savior who's coming for me. Now, can you just imagine if that was not in the Word of God? If God had never given Paul or John or Jesus these words, if, if the Lord had never given the, the Word about the second coming, about the rapture, about the second coming of Christ, about our being caught away, can you imagine if the Word of God was void of that? There would be. You, you would just wonder, what's coming? What's going to happen? We don't have a clue. And yet all through the Word of God, He keeps giving us these little snippets. This is going to happen. This is going to happen. This is going to Watch. Be awake. Be alert. Do y'all remember, uh, you remember seeing, or maybe you read, uh, the Sherlock Holmes. And I can never remember the name of this thing. It was the uh, the, the, blue, the blue streak, is that right? It was the, listen, it was the case of the dog that did not bark. The case of the dog 
that did not bark. Do y'all remember that? Are y'all not Sherlock Holmes fans? I, I just absolutely love them. Well, this very famous, very wealthy family had a very famous racing horse stolen. I mean, this horse was worth thousands and thousands and thousands, and it had been stolen. And uh, they could not figure out who did it. And Sherlock Holmes got off wanting to know, did the dog bark? Did the dog bark? Did the dog bark? And it was the case of the dog that did not bark. He didn't bark. And Holmes finally deduces, why didn't the dog bark? I'm going to spoil it for you. Because he knew who was stealing the horse. It was somebody known to the dog very well. The owner was stealing his own horse. And so you come to this and you're in the dark. What if the dog did not bark? What if we were never told about the coming of Christ? What if it were all sealed up? Do you remember what God tells Daniel? Seal it up, Daniel. This is for another time. Uh, this is not for you to know or to understand. Seal it up until the time. Get to the end of the book of Daniel, and you read that in his prophecy where God says, no, Daniel wants to know. Explain this. God says, no, aren't you glad we don't live in Daniel's time? <laughs> and we live now. In 1986, Queen Elizabeth visited Australia about the 15th or 16th time that she went there. Part of the Commonwealth, she goes there, and while she is there, she gets to Sydney and she hands a letter that she has handwritten, sealed in an envelope. And in that envelope is a message for the people of Australia. But I want you to listen to what she wrote on that envelope. On a suitable day to be selected by you in the year of 2085 AD. 2085 AD. Would you please open this envelope and convey to the citizens of Sydney my message to them? That's where it's kept. That's at the very top of the Victoria Building in Sydney, Australia, on the very top floor in a safe. And there is the front instruction, do not open this until 2085. No one knows what Elizabeth wrote on that. Not an aide, not a secretary, not even her very famous husband at the time. Listen, nobody knew or knows what she wrote in that, and it's been tucked away until 2085. Aren't you thankful that we've got a word that all you have to do, listen, all you have to do is just open it up, and the word tells you this. There's going to be a great day. And that great day will involve the light. And that light is Jesus Christ. Let's stand and pray about it. Thank you for listening to this recording from Valleydale Church. To find more or to connect with us about what you just heard, check us out at valleydale.org.